We're going to look at Mark chapter 15 and verses uh, 42 through uh, chapter 16 and verse 8 this morning. This morning we conclude, uh, we conclude our treatment of Mark's gospel. Uh, this will mark out, uh, at least someone did some math for me this week, this will mark out our 51st sermon in the gospel of Mark. It's taken us a little less than a year. Some of you say, finally, right, finally, uh, something new. Uh, I did hear of a preacher this past week who took four years to go through Mark's gospel. So count your many blessings uh, today. It's been a blessing for me to proclaim uh, or to preach through this gospel to you. Uh, And I wanted to take a moment uh, at this time to thank you as a church for your prayers, for your protection of my schedule, for your support, for your love, and for your encouragement uh, as we've gone through this series. On a human level, I, of course, could not preach the whole way through this gospel without your constant prayers and support, and so I'm thankful uh, for that. Each week, I stand up here and I try to give you a synopsis of what I've learned throughout the course of the week in about 30 to 45 minutes or so. I did a little bit of math, and, and I would say that what I'm sharing with you each week is about, it's, it's probably something like 120th of what I have seen and been able to study and discover in the text of Scripture throughout the course of the week. So uh, it's just, uh, hopefully every week you're saying, man, this is just a full full experience uh, in the Word of God. Uh, So I'm thankful for your investment and kindness to me as a pastor, and I want to praise God for the opportunity to study and to proclaim His Word. I still pinch myself. This is the best job on the planet, uh, to study the Word and proclaim it to others. And so uh, thank you and praise be to God. In our last sermon in Mark today, we are going to go from utter depths to amazing heights. And the way God has arranged this for us in this last sermon, we're going to be looking at the burial of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ. These two events, of course, course, occurred within hours of each other, separated by just a few days. Have you ever gone from utter depths to amazing heights in the course of a few hours or a few days? I I heard about a friend who... I went through this sort of experience recently in that they went through the utter depths of death of a loved one, was of a parent. And then just a few hours later, actually the next day, just a few hours later, they experienced the birth of a child. So in that sort of experience, you go from the depths of death and loss to the loftiness of new life. This morning, as we look at the end of Mark 15, beginning of Mark 16, that's what we're going to do. We're going to see the depths of death and the loftiness of life. So we start with the depths of his burial, verses 42 through 47. But understand this, I divide it into two parts. The process of his burial, verses 42 through 46 is where we start. And it all starts with a request in verse 42. So look down in your Bible there. It says, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, 
who was also himself looked for the kingdom of God, took courage, and went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So we start here. On Friday night, a request comes for the body of Jesus from an unusual source, unexpected source, Joseph of Arimathea. I take just a few moments to consider who this character is, who he is. We know a little bit about him from this gospel. We know from the other gospels as well. This account is found in all four gospels. So I want to give you just six statements about Joseph of Arimathea. First, he was from Arimathea. The text says Arimathea is a town just to the north and the west of Jerusalem. He's not from too far away. He's from a town in Judea. But then notice that he was also a respected member of the council or the Sanhedrin. This is not just any person from Arimathea. This man is a council member. He's one of the 70 members of the Sanhedrin. I think that this is an important piece of information. It should be intriguing to you. I think one of the questions you should ask at this point is, why? Why would a member of the council who killed Jesus, was instrumental in the death of Jesus, why would someone from that council want to bury him? Some scholars here suggest that it might be because of Joseph's great respect for the law of Moses. Okay, there's a text, for instance, in the book of Deuteronomy. You could write it down. We won't turn there. Deuteronomy 21-23, where in the law of Moses, it requires for the dead bodies of even criminals who are hung on trees to be taken down before the Sabbath. Okay, get that? So in Deuteronomy 21, 23, uh, and, and since Joseph's a member of the Sanhedrin, he most definitely would know this. Criminals were not allowed to be hanging dead on the Sabbath, and so some people suggest that's the reason. As much as that might be true, it does not appear to me to be the predominant reason with Joseph of Arimathea, and I'm going to get to the predominant reason a little bit later. First, we see he's from Arimathea. He's a member, respected member of the Sanhedrin. Next, From other Gospels, we know that although he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he did not support their condemnation of Jesus. Okay, this is not found in Mark's Gospel. You have to go to a few others to see this. Like Luke 23, verse 51, describing Joseph of Arimathea, it says, "...who had not consented to their decision and action." Okay, so if we're putting all the Gospels together to tell the full story of Joseph of Arimathea, somehow, someway, he was not a part of their decision to execute and kill Jesus. Whether he was absent at Caiaphas' home or whatever, we don't know for sure. But he was not a part of this. Begs the question, why? Why hadn't he consented? And that leads to my fourth observation about Joseph of Arimathea, and that is that he was a follower or a disciple of Jesus. You say, well, where do you get that in the text? I mean, because we're text people, right? Not just because a preacher stands up here and tells you, you got to find it in the text. Where do you get that in the text? And I would say, well, Mark gives us, I think, a clue at the end of verse 43. So look in your Bible at the end of verse 43. He writes there that Jesus, that Joseph, I'm sorry, was looking 
for the kingdom of God. You see that in the middle? Who also himself was looking for the kingdom of God. Okay, so that's a noble thing, right? A Jewish leader to be looking for the kingdom of God. But actually, that's not enough to say he was a follower of Jesus. Because you could probably say this about many Jews in the first century. They were looking for the kingdom of God. Okay, that's where other gospel writers help us again. And I encourage you to write down two texts. Luke 23, 50. In Luke 23, in describing Joseph of Arimathea, Luke describes him as a good and a righteous man. A good and a just man. Okay, so we're getting there. This guy might be more than just a Jewish teacher. He might be a follower of Jesus. He's a good and a righteous man. And then Matthew goes even farther. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27, 57, Matthew says there, and this was, uh, this was at the beginning of Matthew's account of uh, Jesus's burial. He describes Joseph this way. He says, there came a rich man from Arimathea, same guy, named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. Okay, that's where we get it really clearly. So this member of the Sanhedrin was more than just someone looking for the kingdom of God. He thought it was coming in the person of Jesus Christ. He was a disciple or follower of Jesus. But I want to add a few other pieces to that. Okay, so we've got these details. The fifth detail is this. In John's gospel, we learn he was not just a follower of Christ, but he was a secret follower of Jesus. Again, writing down references to save us a little bit of time. John 19, 38. John 19, 38, John says this. He says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, there it is again, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Okay, so what we know about, about Joseph of Arimathea is he was a secret follower of Jesus. But then, as Mark says in verse 43, the end of the verse, finally he takes courage to support Christ on, after his death on the cross. Look at the end of verse 43. There in the middle also it says, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for his body. So here at this moment, Joseph comes out of hiding and asks Pilate for Jesus' body. Pilate then has a brief exchange with the centurion, asks him if Jesus is dead. He's surprised that Jesus is dead already, but the centurion confirms it. Centurions were really good at executions. They would know if Jesus was, he would know if Jesus would be dead or not. I mean, the centurion's very life would depend upon whether or not he did this well. And so Jesus is dead, and the centurion then gives, and Pilate gives Joseph Jesus' corpse. And you see that in verse 45. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse. And yes, that's the right word. It's not body. It's not a normal word for body. This is corpse. Dead body. The lifeless corpse. A strong word. Lifeless corpse. Pierced through. Fastened to a cross. 
is given to Joseph of Arimathea. Okay, so this is Joseph's request. He wants the body. And then Joseph's action, verse 46. Look down there in your Bible. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Here Joseph hurriedly buys a linen cloth, wraps Jesus in it, lays him in his family's tomb, and has a stone rolled up against the tomb. Okay, That's where we learn in the last verse of the chapter that there were some people watching or observing all of this. So look down at the last verse, verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Now, I want you to do something with me here, though, briefly. Look up, look up a few verses in your Bible, verse 40. Okay, so look at verse 40. There were also women looking from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Here we see in verse 40, uh, two of the women who were standing off watching Jesus uh, die on the cross now accompany him to the graveside. They are Mary Magdalene, the woman that Jesus had, had healed of seven demons earlier in her life and who followed Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. And then there was Mary, the mother of Joseph who was described in verse 40 as Mary the mother of James as well, James the lesser, okay? One of the most difficult things, of course, with all these narratives and figuring out who these women are is there are a whole lot of Marys <laughs> in this portion of the text. It's like uh, being on staff at Colonial Baptist Church and being named John, you know? It's like, which one are you talking about? Here, Mary the mother of Joseph and the mother of James the lesser could be Jesus' mother. Could be, and some people make that case. I, I think it's better to see her as Mary, the uh, mother of a disciple named James the Lesser. Okay, so Mary, one of the uh, mother of one of the disciples. Re- regardless, okay, whether there are three Marys here or two, regardless, it is these women who are the only followers of Jesus who remain at this point. Mark's gospel, the disciples are long gone. They are absent. These women are the only ones who remain, but they're, they're at a distance. And I'll, I'll, I'll make this point, okay? It's, I guess it's better to be a disciple at a distance than to be completely absent, okay? However, these women are there, and as we continue to read into chapter 16, we see that they perform a very important part of Mark's resurrection narrative as well. That goes from 16, chapter 16, verse 1 through verse 8. Again, this is where we go from utter depths to amazing heights. And as we pick up the story here in, in the verses, we'll see more about these women. These women are going to step into an overwhelming scene. They were stepped into a room before that was just like full of like energy or celebration or something. You had no idea what was going on. For me, it's uh, every night when I go home to my house with my kids. Or last night I saw someone, it was a surprise birthday party, and someone came into the room and was like, what is going on? 
Well, imagine these women as they go to the tomb and they step in and they're confronted with an angel. Okay, so I want to look at their journey first, verses 1 through 4. Look with me at verse 1. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Well, the women named here are the ones in 1540 and 1547, except in 1547, Salome was not there. First opportunity, we learn these women uh, probably around 6 p.m. on Saturday go and buy some spices, or the word could be literally translated perfumes. Of course, they did not embalm bodies during this time and day, but they would perfume them and put spices over them, and Jesus really hadn't had that sort of proper treatment because of the rush to bury him in the tomb. And so early on Sunday morning, soon as they can, after Sabbath is done, they rush to the tomb to anoint Jesus. Once they get to the site, they wonder how they can move away the large stone, but to their amazement, they find it rolled away. And their amazement doesn't stop there. Look with me at verse 5 at what happens. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Okay, so these women walk in this overwhelming scene. They're met by an angel with a message. Mark describes him here in this text as a young man. And, uh, but the other gospels describe this one in white uh, as an angel. I don't think this is a conflict at all. As, as angels would often come temporarily in the form of human beings when they're delivering God's message. So Mark emphasizes here, I think, in verses 5 through 7, the angel's message. I think it has three parts to it. And I invite you to look with, the, with me at those three parts. First, he tells them, do not be frightened. The women respond in the way that just about every person I could find in the Old New Testament responded to the revelation of an angelic being. They are frightened. They're alarmed. And so the angel moves quickly to give them a note of reassurance. Sure, they appreciate that. Don't be alarmed. Then he explains what happened. And it's very interesting to me that this is the, the, the lone testimony in Mark's gospel to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The angel doesn't say how it happened. He just says that he, it did. And in a few simple words... He proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. I'll let you hone in on the words there in the middle of that text, verse 6 in the middle. He has risen. He 
is not here. I think these words form the heart of the good news about Jesus found in the Gospel of Mark. I mean, without these words, he has risen, he is not here. There would be no good news in Mark's Gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they proclaim it fervently. The the hope of Mark's Gospel is found in these seven or eight words before you. He is not here. He is risen. Hope of Mark's gospel is not found in the the desertion of the eleven. It's not found in the disciples. It's not found in the betrayal of one. But in God's power to raise Christ from the dead. And so this is the high point in the gospel. Then in verse 7, the angel commands them. In verse 7, the angel concludes with two commands, actually. Two words. Go, speak. Or go and tell his disciples and Peter. He's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. So the women are told here that they must depart and they must tell the disciples and Peter. I love that. Don't you love that part of this text? And Peter, the one who'd failed so miserably before, go get him to and tell him that Jesus is going to meet with them in Galilee. And all that's left in Mark's gospel after this, these two commands is one verse. You say, well, well, hold on there, preacher. What do you mean one verse? I got like other stuff in here too. Okay, we're gonna have to take a moment to, to work through this. I believe that the end of Mark's gospel occurs in verse eight, and we're gonna return to that in a moment. Okay, having said that, just know I am a conservative person who will defend the integrity of this book. And having said that, that's one of the reasons why I want to talk to you a little bit about verses 9 through 20. I'm not going to go into full detail, and I can give you more information about this. Okay? But I believe that verses 9 through 20 were an addition given by a scribe to help try to bring Mark's gospel to a close. Okay? All right, so as we look at at these verses, you'll notice that in many of your Bibles, verses 9 through 20 are found within double parentheses. That means most translators of the the Bible, put it into English for us, uh, believe that these verses were not an original part of Mark's gospel. They, They do not believe they're original part of Mark's gospel. And that's primarily because these verses are not found in the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have of Mark's gospel. You see, we do not have any of the original documents. You know, we don't have the, we don't have the papyri that John Mark wrote out the gospel of Mark on. We don't have any of the originals. Okay, but what we have are thousands upon thousands of copies. Okay, And so the two earliest copies that we have of 
the New Testament are from the 4th century. And both of those copies don't have verses 9 through 20 in them. So the, the, the very earliest Greek manuscripts that we have don't have verses 9 through uh, 20 in them. It's most likely that a scribe added these verses to give a fitting ending to the gospel. Okay, if you don't have these verses, it seems like a very abrupt ending, but I'm going to make the point in a second. I think that's Mark's style. That's how he writes. Very abrupt. And he's, and there's a purpose for it. Having said that, uh, the content verses 9 through 20 uh, is normally very orthodox. It can be found in other places in the New Testament, like in the Gospel of Matthew and in the book of Acts. You'll see many of these same sort of stories and things uh, given there. But instead, I think Mark wants to end his Gospel, or at least this section, abruptly with one verse, verse 8. Now let's read it. Verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So one of the things I point out to you here that uh, struck me this week is the role of the women, the role that the women play in all of the passion events. Okay, so when Jesus is crucified, the crucifixion of Jesus, it ends with verse 40 and 41, them watching from a distance. When Jesus is buried, Joseph Arimathea has him taken to the tomb, stone is rolled away. It ends with the women seeing where they laid him, verse 47. And when he is risen, it ends again with the women. This time they run away frightened. That's not the response I was hoping to get from the women. We had so much hope for them, but their initial response here is not very good. Actually, in this one verse, I counted seven different indications in verse 8 alone that they are fearful and anxious at the message from the angel. So he says, don't be alarmed or frightened, and they see everything, they see things in the tomb, and they are frightened. You say, well, what are the, you know, what are the seven indications? Just look at verse 8 again. Uh, look at verse 8. And they went out. They departed. They fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. It's a strong word. Seized them. Overtaken them. Grabbed hold of them. And they said nothing to anyone. Because they were afraid. And so I see here seven indi- different indications that they're afraid, they're trembling, they're seized by fear, and they run away. And then a miracle happens. The text says that they are women and that they do not say anything. Bad joke. But imagine it, I mean, imagine this. Okay, so they're women. They see an empty tomb. They see an angel. And they say nothing. 
to nothing. And the reason they do this is because they're afraid. As I look through the Gospel of Mark, the end of the Gospel of Mark, if, if, if any human beings in this story get it right, it's two outsiders or strangers. The account of Jesus' crucifixion, it was a Roman centurion who said, in looking the way he died, truly this man is the Son of God. That's his death. And then at his, at his burial, the man who gets it right is Joseph of Arimathea, who takes courage to step forward and care for the, the corpse of Jesus. But that leaves us at the end of Mark's gospel with, but who's, who's going to step forth as a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I think Mark does this intentionally. I would call the gospel of Mark an open-ended gospel. Christ has done his part. God has done his part. There, there is good news, but who will proclaim it? I think that's the point that Mark is making in his gospels. He gives it to these Roman Christians who are being persecuted initially. Who is going to proclaim the gospel? Mark's gospel, the disciples don't. The women don't. So who will? And the answer is the reader must. We must proclaim this message. And so as we leave Mark's gospel, it's it's an open-ended gospel challenging us to step to the front and to take this message of the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for sins to the world. Men and women, we live in an age when our culture approves our desires to minister to the lowly and the weak and the poor. Those who are disadvantaged, they can applaud that. We live in an age when the church, I think, is rightfully responding to things like the victimization of the unborn and discrimination of all different kinds. We should be full of social compassion, but we cannot miss this. We must take the message of the good news of Jesus Christ to others. And so I ask you, when was the last time that you took the good news of Jesus Christ to an unbeliever? So I got all these other competing things I'm really charged up about. Yeah, but we cannot miss this. It would be sad, sad irony for someone to hear 51 sermons on the good news of Jesus Christ and not open their mouth to tell other people about it. So, who will you tell? It's reading stats about evangelical believers, and it's a sad, sad statistics. A study I saw by Barna said that 100% of evangelicals know that they have the obligation to tell the gospel of Jesus Christ to others 
but only about a third of them do it within a given year, a year. And so, may this not be true of us, Colonial Baptists. And may we not do this with sadness, like we're inviting people to a funeral, but joy in celebrating something. Paul the Apostle wrote to the Romans, so as much as in me is, I am eager to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to you who are in Rome also. Is that true of you? You say, I am eager. I just can't wait for that guy to shut his mouth and pray because I can't wait to tell people about the best news the world would ever hear. Jesus died for our sins and he rose again so that we can be delivered.